So this I am thing, like all the time we say things about ourselves, right? We're constantly saying things about ourselves. And, and in our culture, like we can say it and like I am the greatest. That was one of the first things that hit. I think of Muhammad Ali and pretty much anybody that I see on TV, their life is the greatest and they want to make sure that we know it everywhere out there. But there's a lot of good things we say too, right? Like when you go to the doctor, you want to make sure your doctor tells you that he's a doctor, like he's got a jacket on, stethoscope, there's a certificate on the wall. You don't want to go to like an unlicensed physician for that's not a great thing. Um, maybe after the hurricane, you saw people with orange vests on coming around. I, I am off. Authorized. They had like the FEMA thing on, they had their name badges. They wanted to make sure you knew that they were authorized by FEMA to come help you. They weren't coming to try to take your money or hurt you. They were authorized. They were in charge. They were allowed to be there. Um, something I've noticed recently that's actually been really helpful, a, a couple of funerals that I've been to and um, some fundraisers, uh, elected representatives will wear a badge that says who they are with a picture of them and their, their office that we voted them to. I am an elected representative. I am working for you. Here's who I am. Here's who I represent. And, and so there's like some really good things that we can say about ourselves really explicitly. Um, some other things that we might say, uh, short of that, we might say I'm a fan of this band or this movie. You wear a t-shirt to let everybody know that I am into this thing. And, and you tell people very explicitly, I love Star Wars. I love uh, Seinfeld. We have a shirt right here. Um, I love Surge. I love Southwind. I love these different things. I am into this. This is something that I am about. Um, some of them are less explicit. They're more implicit. Maybe you wear a lot of Patagonia to let us know that you're really into the mountains and being outdoors, or you're really into fishing. You wear a lot of Columbia. You tell people things by kind of what you wear, the personas that you put on. Maybe when you were in high school, you had a country phase like me and deleted all of those pictures. Um, there are some other things that we say. I drive a, a, a silver sedan, so I tell people I'm a very practical dad. Uh, some of you drive Jeeps, and you tell your, my kids that you're really cool, and they kind of wish you were their dads. So um, we tell people things about ourselves all the time, uh, and we make these I am statements all the time, mostly about the, who we are in relation to the world. We, we tell it, um, kind of this I am statement about the world around us, the people around us, the, the things that are going on around us, uh, maybe who we think we are. So maybe the way we dress, maybe the things that we do lets people know who we think we are. Uh, maybe the things that we want to be when you try on, especially uh, if you remember maybe in high school, middle school, trying on different personas, different things to try to fit in this year. This is who I want to be. And you kind of tell people that through the ways that you act, the people you spend time with, the things you wear, the, the stuff that is around you. And, and maybe um, you're telling people the needs that you need to be fulfilled, whether they are or not fulfilled. You, explain, you, you show that. We kind of put that on display. I am in need of this. I want this. Or I have done this thing and I want you to know about. These are kind of in relation to the things around us and to the people around us. What's been really um, amazing in these I am statements that Jesus makes is he comes at them from a very different angle because Jesus doesn't make these statements in relation in the same way we do. We are kind of in to the people around us or who we want to be. But Jesus makes these statements about who he is in relationship to himself, in relation to God. And today he makes a statement in relation to life and even death itself. It's an incredible thing in these I am statements. And so today we're going to be looking at John chapter 11. Um, and I'd invite you to follow along if you can, if you have your phone Bibles or your Bible with you or in your bulletins, uh, the main text is on there, John chapter 11, verses 17. Um, I'm going to start a little bit before that, if you have yours and want to follow along in another thing. But um, I want to tell you a little bit about John before you get there. Um, John is one of my favorite authors. Um, John has spent a lot of time with Jesus. John is one of his followers. John has been up close and personal with Jesus. He has seen the things that have been happening day after day. So he captures little details that some of the other writers don't have. And he reveals Jesus in a very different way. It's a very intimate way. It's a very personal way. Um, the reason we chose this year to do this gospel reading plan was for a couple of reasons. One is I really do believe that if you were going to do one thing this year, if you're going to do one thing that would help you in your life is to read scripture. Because if you know it, if you're spending time with it, you will know Jesus more 
closely and it will change your life. In fact, they have done studies. This is a really fascinating thing. Uh, there was a, a huge church today that if you spend five days out of the week reading scripture, that it is more impactful on your life than every other church activity combined times like three. It's incredible the difference just reading the words for ourselves and putting them inside because we get to know who God really is. It's an up close and personal look. And, and that's who John gives us. But the other thing I found really interesting with John, that one of the reasons I'm really attracted to him, part of the reason that we chose to use him at the beginning of the year is because John actually makes an I am statement that when I first read it uh, many years ago, I thought John seems a little conceited because John identifies himself as the disciple Jesus loved. I am the disciple Jesus loved. And on first blush, I'm like, well, you know, what are you trying to tell me here? And I thought, are you just kind of bragging? Is this a thing? And I think as I've gotten to know John more over the years, it's actually something very different. You see, John's identity was so changed by his time with Jesus. He was so different because he was with him that his identity was, I am the disciple loved by Jesus. I am one who is loved by Jesus. My identity, what I live out of it, the truth is, everything about me flows out of this truth. And so when you read it from that perspective, John just has a different view on all of this. So we're going to be looking at that, and that's who's telling us this encounter with Jesus today. I'm going to start with John 11, chapter 1, to just kind of give a little bit of a frame to the scene, because we're going to be jumping into a scene that's pretty intense, but I want you to know why there's a little bit of a buildup to it, too. So in John 11, uh, verses 1 through 7, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So a couple of things we get from this. Jesus knew Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He had a relationship with them. He knew them. And it wasn't just an acquaintance kind of knowing them. He knew them. In fact, in verse five, it says he loved them. He loved them. He knew them deeply. These were close friends of his. But here's what's really interesting to set the scene because right after that, in verse five, where it says that Jesus loved them, verse six says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. The scene that we walk into has some tension built around it because Martha and Mary had sent Jesus. They knew that he could heal. They had seen his power. They said, if you'll come, you can heal our brother Lazarus. He is sick. Come to him. And it says in verse 5, he loved them, but then he stayed two more days. There's a disconnect somewhere in there. And it's a question you have to ask, like, why did he stay? What's going on in there? But also, it leads into this next scene when Jesus shows up with Martha and Mary. There's some disappointment there. There's some hurt there's some unfulfilled expectations that they're, they're living with as he walks in. So we're going to pick up here in uh, verse 16 for just a second before we get onto our passage. Um, one of the things that's been so helpful, I think, when we go back and read these texts for ourselves is there are little things you get to pick up. There are parts that we might leave out because they don't preach well. They don't, you know, have this great thing. But verse 16 is one of those really interesting things as I was reading it. If you wanted to write a really clean version of Jesus' story, you would make everybody look great, right? Like point everything where it's supposed to go. But John, because he was there, because these are real people, these are incredible details, says this, Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. 
I hear Eeyore there. Let us also go so that we may die with him, right? Like the rain cloud over Thomas. Thomas is the one that doubted later on. But this is one of those details, I think, that leads in there. Let us know these were real people. These were real guys that followed Jesus. These were people that did not know the end of the story. Though they had spent every day with Jesus, they did not fully know who he was. And there was still a sense of like, I guess we're just going to follow him to our death. They didn't know the end of the story. These had people with real feelings with real doubts, with real insecurities, with real fears. And I love that he captures that in there that to let us know that on this side, 2,000 years later, that's normal for us. It's normal for us to have those things because we weren't there with him. And even the people that were there with him had these same th- feelings. So here we go. I'm going to kind of break it up and we'll be reading through and, and talking through a little bit, but we're going to start here in verse 17. It says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Uh, Martha is a really interesting person. Martha, a couple books before this in Luke is painted as a person who is busy, who prepares everything. Martha has been part of this ministry that's been running. She is the one who made sure that people were fed, that meetings happened, that people were moving. And Martha goes out to meet Jesus. She meets him out on the road. It's just her and Jesus. And her first statement, you can read it in there, just the disappointment. If you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. If you had just been here. But what's incredible is that it's not just that. She also pairs it up in the second part. She says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Um, in earlier telling of Martha and Mary, Martha is kind of um, almost cast as a little bit of the villain a, a bit. The, she was wrong for being busy. Mary had chosen the right thing to be by Jesus. Yet the scene here is a bit flipped. Mary is back home, but Martha goes out to see him. Martha, the busy one, Martha had built up enough there. But not only did she meet him, not only did she express her disappointment, her faith is really unbelievable. Because in this moment, her brother Lazarus has died. She's disappointed. Her needs were not met. But she says, but even now, even now, I know that he got, you can do whatever you ask of God. Her faith is such on display. I love this picture of Martha, this affirmation of who she was, this care that Jesus had for her, and the fact that she knew Jesus well enough that she could say that to him, that she could stand there. I mean, you've got to picture the scene. It's just the two of them in a road. She's in the midst of mourning, and they're right there. Earlier on, it said that um, in 17, that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This is kind of an important detail that he threw in there as well. Uh, Jewish custom at the time held that for three days, the spirit would stay with the body. And on the fourth day, had left. So he wanted to make sure that we knew that Lazarus was dead, dead. He was gone. There was no semblance of life. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't just sick. He was gone. And so that's where we meet them. Jesus and Martha right there on the street, broken sad, grieving, but even then Martha shows her faith. Continues on in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See, at the time, resurrection was a pretty widespread belief that the body would come back to life, that there would be a time that we would come back, that you would face judgment. And there were kind of two camps at the time that were believers. And there was the Pharisees, and this is one of those helpful things from Sunday school early on. Uh, Pharisees believed in the resurrection and mnemonic for that. The far ICs, they believed in the resurrection, and this was a very popular thing that they had spread around. But then there were also the Sadducees. It was another camp that didn't believe in any sort of resurrection. They were sad. You see, get it? Take that with you. Um, so 
She believed in the resurrection. She believed that her brother would be back. But then Jesus makes the most incredible claim. Again, the scene is so incredible. Martha and Mary just standing on a street, and Jesus reveals maybe the most amazing thing about himself. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? Basically says, one of the, the translations I read, somebody had kind of rewritten, he says, I, I am that resurrection. I am that life. In the present, right here, right now, standing next to you, I am that person. That claim, that divides some things because if you uh, are kind of in a camp where Jesus is kind of a soft, like he says some really wise things and he's kind of a good dude, um, he just makes a pretty bold claim right here where you have to sort of decide, is he a crazy person or is he who he says he is? This is one of those ones you can't really back away from because he claims to be the resurrection and life itself. It's an incredible claim and he makes it to Martha right there. A quote I read said that Jesus makes the future present, hope visible, the then, the now, the thing, a person. But he does not evacuate her future. He combines all of these incredible concepts, resurrection, life, future, present, then, now, hope, grief, all of it kind of comes together in these two sentences. It is a loaded statement. Full. This is a, a two sentences you could probably spend the rest of your life just going through if you wanted to because there's so much in there. And then he follows it up with something really amazing. At the very end of that, he says, do you believe this? He's, again, in Martha are standing there and he just looks over at her. And he says, do you believe this? He doesn't leave those sentences hanging. There's, there is a sense that he wanted this personal response from Martha. You see, he loved her. It says that he loved Martha, he loved Mary, he loves Lazarus. And he doesn't want this to just be a philosophical statement that he's made that floats out into the ether. He doesn't want it to be something that's just captured on a paper for us to do now. It, it was a very personal response to Martha, to someone he cared about. See, all of these things that he says about himself seem to be in relation with other people. When he reveals that I am the good shepherd, he's speaking to people. He's revealing this in relationship. I am the gate. I am the bread of life. And, and as I've read that, I've, I've started to put that question next to it because you could almost see Jesus standing there with people every time saying, I am the bread of life and kind of leaning over to one of his disciples or the people in the crowd going, do you believe that? Because he wants a response. He doesn't want it to just sit there. He wants a response to it. He wants belief. Uh, and especially it seems that he wants this from Martha, the fact that it's recorded. Do you believe this? Verse 27 Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Really interesting. Jesus says, do you believe this? Do you believe this concept that I've just laid on you? Do you believe this huge statement that I've just put on you? Martha doesn't say, yes, Lord, I believe this. Martha says something that I think is way more incredible than that. Martha says, yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Yes, Lord, I believe that you. See, she, like us, probably can't even wrap our heads around that. She's sitting in this moment with him, and he asks, tells her, that I'm the, the, come the life, I'm the life and the resurrection, I am all of these things. Do you believe this? And she says, no, but I believe you. 
and it's enough. And in fact, I think it's more than enough. It's actually what he wanted because he had so proven to her his character, his heart, his life, that she could immediately respond, yes, Lord, I believe you. And this incredible thing that you're revealing to me, I believe you, and it's enough. And not just enough, but maybe the best summation of who Jesus is. See, she laid this out there before Lazarus has come back to life. Spoiler alert, Lazarus comes back to life if you didn't know that. Um, I, I didn't mention it the other day, and someone said, hey, you should probably mention that. I'm like, okay, that's good. Um, but she, she has not seen Lazarus back to life. She has not seen the end of Jesus' story. She has not seen all the things that are going to happen. Yet right then and there, she knows exactly who he is. says, I believe you. So it continues on, verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. After Martha meets with Jesus, she goes and says, Mary, the teacher is here and he's waiting for you. Mary has been separated. Mary has stayed back. Mary was the one painted earlier on as the one who would sit at Jesus' feet, the one who spent time with him while Martha was busy. But here we see Martha had enough faith to step out and talk to him. Mary, for some reason, had stayed back. Maybe she was too sad. Uh, we have to speculate a little bit in there. Maybe it's her depression that kept her back. Maybe just the brokenness of it. Maybe she didn't even feel like she could face the person that she was so disappointed in. But the incredible thing is Jesus goes to her and says, come to me. He invites her in. That is something that we could live by. That Jesus didn't wait for her to make it right. Jesus doesn't say, well, if these three steps, if you'll do, Mary, then we'll meet together. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me in the midst of your brokenness. Come to me in the midst of your sadness. Just come to me, Mary. I want to see you. And instantly, Mary gets up and goes to him. You see, I think in her heart of heart, that's what she wanted and whatever was holding her back, whatever was binding her up to stay there, what she wanted was an invitation from the teacher to come be with him. And I think if we're honest, that's what we all want. Deep down inside, we want an invitation. We want to hear our name called and we want to be invited in because that's what we're wired for. We're wired to be wanted. We're wired to be loved. We're wired especially to be wanted by the one who created us to begin with. And as soon as Mary hears it, she gets up and goes. And there seems to be a sense even in this that Mary had her own resurrection. You see, there's a sense that there was something binding her up, holding her back, keeping her in place. And there she is back to life with the teacher a really incredible thing. It kind of brings to mind the prodigal son as the father runs down to the road to meet the son before he's able to make his long forgiveness speech. The father's there and we see the heart of God revealed in this invitation in the midst of her brokenness, in the midst of her sadness. Continues on in 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Um, in one of the shortest verses of the Bible, two words, Jesus wept, 35. We see so much of the heart of God on this place. You see, Jesus is fully God. He knows what he's about to do. He knows he is about to call Lazarus from the grave and this most incredible miracle, the power of de over death itself. He is about to beat it all. He knows what's going to happen, but it does not negate his ability to be present in their current suffering. It does not negate his compassion for those that are there weeping and grieving and I think that is so freeing. 
Because sometimes we can rush so far past it and think, well, I just need to see to the other side of this and, and, and negate my own feelings in the midst of loss. But Jesus, God himself, sits there and weeps with those who are weeping. And I think we see the heart and character and the love of God so fully on display in that moment when he just sits there and weeps with him. And even, even the word and the weeping is such a, a God role, like full-bodied response that Jesus does with these people. I love it. I love seeing that. Three things that I want to point out from this that I think are really helpful. The first is this. There is death in life. This is the reality of our life. There is death, there is loss, there is grieving, and there is hurt. One of the effects when sin entered the world was that we were no longer living for eternity. Death entered, brokenness happened, relationships were broken up, people die, will die, our bodies end. And there is sadness around this. There is grief around this, there is hurt, there is brokenness, there is pain. Jesus, if he truly is the incarnate God, if he is truly displaying God's heart and his character as he lives it out and we see him weeping, he gives us permission to do that as well. To be with us, not only permission, but he says, I will come sit alongside you in the midst of it. I'm not leaving you. I'm not telling you to just get over it. I'll be there with you in the midst of it. About um, three weeks ago, my last uh, living grandmother passed away. Um, And I don't say that to get in awe, although I got it at the nine o'clock. Nothing about you. Um, but it's one of those things, right? You don't know how to like, bring it up. It's, not, it's for the people that are there, and so many people were able to walk through, and I got to spend some sweet time with her at the end. She had a quick, pretty quick decline, uh, and we were able to spend time and be with her. But it hurts. I mean, there are still times, uh, I mean, just silly things, like I was cleaning off a tablet she had, and there's her email. I'm like, well, this is the last time her email's ever going to get used, right? Like, there are those moments, and it comes back, and there's grief. There's loss. And I know the rest of the story. I know that she believed in Jesus. I know where she is now. I know that she's fine. I know that her body works the way it was supposed to. I know all of these things. But it doesn't negate the fact that it still hurts, that there's still loss, and that we can hold both of those true, that though we can know the end, that we can know that there's more, it's okay to sit there in the reality of what is right there. I think, um, I think this is true. Yeah, you and I, this part I know is true. Yeah, you and I are created in the image of God. In the image of God we are created, it lays it out in Genesis, that we were imbued with the attributes and in, in, in God's image as part of him. And part of the way God wires up, and this is the part I think, and I think it'll ring true, is we're wired for eternity. When we were created in the image of God, God is wired for everlasting and eternal relationships, relationships that are perfect, relationships that never break. And when he created the world, when he created Adam and Eve in the world, it was meant to be like that, perfect relationship with him, perfect relationship with each other. Nothing was broken. Then sin entered the world and brokenness happened. Things ended. And I think there's still a part of us that's wired for eternity. Deep down, we know it. And when people die and when relationships end and when sin happens and brokenness happens, we rub up against this reality of our eternal wiring with the reality of the brokenness of sin, of the ephemeral nature of our time. And we feel a disconnect with it. And that's when those feelings creep in because we're still made for that. And here's the thing that I think plays this out so much because not only is there death in life, there is the offer of life and death. There is life and death. And I put an asterisk there on purpose because in John 11, 25 through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. There is a promise of life everlasting for those who believe. For those who believe in me, there is life. That's the asterisk, for those who believe. And that promise 
was a person. That promise was Jesus. I am that resurrection. I am the life. There is eternal life after death. And it is a promise that we can bank on. It is when everything will be wired back the way it's supposed to be. All of our internal wiring, all of that that was created for eternity will be back in the perfect place. Life will work properly. We'll be in perfect relation with each other, with our creator, with creation. All of it goes back to right. And there's hope in that full life in the presence of our creator. And that is one of the most incredible things that he reveals in this. Not only is there this death and life, but there is life and death for those who believe in him. And that is something that if you've never taken the time to consider, consider it deeply. It is a great promise. But I think it's a promise. And I think it's something that if we're not careful, that we can miss this other thing, this third thing. I think sometimes we can so get focused on the future of what will come, of the heaven to come, of this life to come, that we can forget that part of Jesus' offer was life now. There is life in this life. There is life before death. As soon as we believe in Jesus, the power of death is broken. It is no longer held over us, and there is an offer of life instantly. Jesus comes and he says, and in my favorite statement that Jesus makes, John 10.10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come to give life and life to the full. Jesus offer is to come to give life. I am the resurrection and the life. There is a presentness offer in there. As soon as we believe this power that has been hanging over us is gone and there is an offer of life, of full life, of new life in this moment, in this time, and it is something that I think we can miss because we can get so bound up in the rules. We can get so bound up in all of the things that we miss this truth. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And I want to say that again. Jesus didn't just come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Jesus' greatest desire is that we would be alive now. Don't miss it. This is one of those things that I think walking through some of this recent grief, there are parts of that that just ring so true. There are so many people that I have seen that believe in Jesus and that know it's so true, but there's just no evidence of it. There's no, none of the joy and the life that he has to offer, but that is part of why he came for us to be alive He demonstrates this to the full, this offer of life, when he brings Lazarus out. You see, he goes, and Lazarus is dead, dead, dead. And he says, come, Lazarus, come out, unbind him. Take the things that were holding him down and unbind him. He calls him by name. Last week, we talked about Jesus being the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep by name. I love it. He calls Lazarus by name. We see a picture of him as the good shepherd. He says, come out and unbind him. He is life. He is full life. And he came so that we can live that. So I'm going to ask you a question that's going to sound really familiar. Do you believe this? Because it's the same question he asked Martha, and it's the same question I think he asked in every one of his I am statements. They all require a response. Do you believe this? Do you believe me? I think deep, deep down that's what Jesus really desires. If you believe in me, life. If you believe in me, life after death. If you believe in me, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, do you believe and if you believe, does your life look like someone who believes that? Does it matter for when you walk out of this room? You know, Mary uh, was invited to come to him before she had it figured out in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her loss. Jesus invited her in. And I will tell you, he offers that same invitation to you. That was not an invitation that ended 2,000 years ago on a dusty road in the midst of loss. It's an invitation he asked each and every one of us. And it's not a one-time invitation. Come and see me an ongoing invitation because that's what life is. It's a series of this. We keep coming back as we keep failing. We keep forgetting to live. We keep getting bound up by the things that hold us down. And over and over again, without fail, Jesus says, come to me. 
Come to me and be unbound. That's part of the offer of life is this being unbound, this unrestricted living, this, this full life that he offers. What are the areas in your life that you're still bound up? What are the areas that are holding you back from being able to come see him? What are those things that keep you from living this full life? And Jesus says, come to me. It's that simple. Come to me. I want to unbind you. I want to give you life. It's an incredible offer. I think we, as the church, as believers of him, as followers of him, we have the opportunity to not only know this greatest truth in the world, that Jesus is the resurrection and that he is the life, that he offers grace and new life. We don't only have the offer to share with people through our words and our deeds and our serving. I think one of the incredible opportunities we have as a church, as, as people that come together, as followers of him, is to be some of the most alive people in the world. That we have this opportunity to experience the fullness of life that Jesus offers and to offer that to the world. The fullness that comes from knowing that death has lost its power and we are allowed to live now. The ways that lives out is that we can grieve fully and still experience joy. We can hold them side by side and they are not mutually exclusive. We can be happy and we can love each other and we can serve and we can do these incredible things, not with negating the existence of evil in the world and the darkness there, but with a full embrace of it and it's still knowing full eyes wide open that there is life and that there is a promise of life. We can love without limits. It's an incredible offer to be fully alive and it is the offer that Jesus wants for us because I think, I think more than anything, more than your neighbors wanting to have another checklist of things that they need to do to be better or another list of the ways they're failing or the people that you go to work with, I don't think they're looking for another place to go. I don't think they're looking for um, even some of the answers to some of these things that are in life, the big question we wrestle with. I think the thing that most people are looking for is they're looking for the hope of life. Because I don't know about you, but most places I go and most time I walk out the door, it's the walking dead. Right? There are people that are just not alive and they don't even know that there's an offer of life. And that is the hope that we have for them as we live, as we live life, to say, this is hope. This is what it can look like. Come, come and see this thing. Come and see this man that so changed my life. That's my story. And I think it's a lot of our stories. Come and see he's waiting for you. Let's be people that are fully alive. Let's take that hope into the world. I hope that's the kind of church that we can be and that the church can be the offer of life to a world that fully needs hope and life in it. Let's pray.